Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with Ayan, Anya and Lauren. George is, isn't here at the moment. She is in her marking phase mm. of yeah. uni. She's a teacher. Um, working yeah. very hard. Working very hard. We miss you, George. We're going to play a song for you later. Mm-hmm. Yes, a special song. So mm-hmm. listen out. It's it's one of your favourite songs I've heard. Awkward if she's not listening. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, she's got better things to do. Look mm-hmm. at that. <laughs> well, like, of course she'd be listening. Just know I don't listen to Tuesday Breakfast when I'm not here. No, we know. Ah, okay. <coughs> just, just just letting you know. I don't I always listen in. when I'm not here. I know. I know. You, you live text it. <laughs> you both do, actually, which is really good. Mm, we're committed. So... This weekend, how do you guys feel about the uh, the rally we went to on Saturday? Um, should we give a bit of a background on, on what the rally mm-hmm, was about? Mm-hmm. So it was a counter-protest to the March for Men. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Um, so there was a March for Men rally organised in the city at Fed Square. So this was a counter-protest. Um, and it was just a front for a very... Um, fascist white supremacist group to come in together, mm. and it was organised by Sydney Watson, who um, considers herself an alt-right commentator, and mm. Avi Yemeni, who is um, an Israeli man who consorts with neo-Nazis. So that's a thing. Mm. Um, but both of whom have really strong links to, like, there were a lot of members of neo-Nazi and fascist organisations there on the day. So mm. um, while ostensibly, yeah, it was about sort of men's rights. Equality. It, um, I think that one of the things that I found the most confronting, and I obviously this is going to feel differently for all of us in the room, but mm. the, um, the amount of people hailing Hitler mm. and throwing up white power signs mm. in the middle of Federation Square... At 3 p.m. on a Saturday mm. with families everywhere. I mean, not that families everywhere should make a difference, but it was just such this, um, just the juxtaposition of that was so confronting. Mm. The audacity. Yeah. There's so much of a lack of freedom of speech. Really, These yeah. people gathered in the middle yeah. of the city and were doing that. Yeah. Mm. We were actually talking about it, Lauren, um, the demographic of the mm. audience. Mm. You and I, before Anya, you came... We were saying how a lot of the women look like aunties and they mothers. They look like my family mm. members, I was yeah. expecting, like, young girls or young women. No. These, these, some of them were a lot older, and well, they just seemed like just regular moms and aunts. I took one for the team and watched 
post rally mm-hmm. while I was editing the audio for it, mm-hmm. um, Avi's broadcast. Mm-hmm. So he had some, some guy had a camera phone and was broadcasting live for him, and then they, he put it up on his website. Because um, I was just interested because we could only see a limited number of people who were there, mm-hmm. and yeah, it was it was like just look like mums and dads, like ordinary mm-hmm. normal people. And when they were you know being asked questions and stuff, it was about family values and mm. all of this like it was really horrific racism with this really normal respectful kind mm. of veneer. I think that's why it was really chilling as well yeah. to see all these people who look like any other person on the street yeah and were all gathered together in this feral sort of yeah mob yeah, yeah. and as our, our co-broadcaster um, Jacob pointed out on Facebook mm. after the rally um, after he left, all he could do was look at every middle-aged mm. white man that was around him and wonder, yeah. had you been there? Do you, you know, uh. do you hate me? Like, is it, mm. yeah. Well, it was funny. I, I met an actual, uh, well, I made a joke about that, actually. I was saying how, which is cheeky, but the anti, anti, what was it? Antifa. Uh, no, not Antifa. The, so the group opposing the racists and the neo-Nazis and so on. The CAF, was it? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what do they stand for? What's the acronym? Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Yeah, so that crew, we were, obviously, they were the organisers, so we were standing around and, and so on. And I was looking around and I was like, fuck, I can't, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I completely forgot where I was at. I'm, I do apologise. Yeah. Language warning. Um, no, but I was saying, I was thinking how I couldn't tell the difference between mm. them mm. and the, the racists, because everyone... Oh my God, yes. Yeah, everyone, they were just all, like, white folks, just white folks going and about their business. And a lot of military-influenced fashion mm. choices on oh the left, God. which was oh really jarring God. with the kind of militarized neo-Nazi... Yeah. Ra- yeah, ugh, yeah. Well, yeah, one guy looked like he, he was straight out of, um, this is England, mm. yeah. but he was against the mm. racist he was mm. like on the side of calf and I was like but your get up says otherwise like mm. I was so confused so for me so they were like they're around at one point one of the organisers was saying oh they're around um, they're sort of forming a thingy like some of them are joining us and mm. sort of walking around us you know trying to intimidate us and I was like I can't tell the difference yeah they, there was nothing to like and signify that interesting words. how unsafe it makes you feel when somebody looks like they have a certain belief mm. even if they don't right I was like I, can't, mm. I was like how do I know which one's the good white person I, I, I really can't tell <laughs> none of us y'all look the same um, <laughs> shall we go to news yeah, headlines on that yeah. note no more vilification of white people oh, <laughs> and don't call us yeah <laughs> well, all right, I've got some news headlines for you. Sorry, George, if this is um, doesn't live up to your expectations. Police have reportedly arrested 10 men involved in kidnapping, raping, torturing, tattooing and holding captive a 17-year-old in central Morocco. The girl named Khadija was subjected to the worst forms of violence during the month she was held by more than 10 men in Ulad Ayad, a small town near Beni Malal and 150 kilometres northeast of Marrakesh. The awful story has stirred up outrage and controversy, especially amongst women's rights associations. Morocco's rate of reported rapes increased from 800 cases in 2016 to 1,600 cases in 2017, according to an annual report issued by the King's Attorney General, Mohamed Abdul Nabavi. In 2017, a total of 17,280 people were arrested on corruption charges. 
2,890 for adultery, 5,328 for prostitution, and 2,384 for rape. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the beginning of um, news headlines. Descendants of the perpetrators and the survivors of the last officially recorded Frontier Massacre 90 years ago at Coniston in Central Australia reunited on Friday, 24th August 2018, to call for a national truth-telling process. In August 1928, a white dingo trapper, Fred Brooks, was found murdered on Coniston Station. Brooks had been living at a waterhole called Yukuru, west of the homestead. In reprisal, groups of men on horseback, led by mounted constable George Murray, shot and killed more than 50 men, women and children at at least six sites between August and October 1928, according to historians. No charges were ever laid. A board of inquiry set up to investigate the killings ruled the party had acted in self-defense. Descendants of Murray first joined the commemorations 15 years ago and have been attending ever since. Up to 30 irregular migrants are believed to be hiding inside Queensland's crocodile-infested Daintree rainforest after their boat, believed to be a fishing vessel, found founded near the mouth of the Daintree River. Police have confirmed that a search is underway to find the migrants who waded through waters to make landfall after their fishing junk ran aground just offshore on Sunday morning. Eleven men, all understood to be Vietnamese, have been detained, but up to 30 more are still being sought. Some are believed to be hiding in mangroves, which are infested with deadly saltwater crocodiles. It is not known whether any of the migrants have sought protection from Australian authorities or whether they are fishermen who ran into difficulties. Boats carrying asylum seekers from Vietnam reach Australian waters, or near to, with semi-regularity, but vessels are usually intercepted before they make landfall. Asylum claims are often made at sea, and people are returned to Vietnam without ever reaching Australia. Refugee lawyers and activists have been galvanised by the cloud hanging over Peter Dutton's eligibility to sit in Parliament, with a potential High Court challenge looming that could see thousands of asylum seeker decisions overturned. Human rights lawyers have been poring over the Solicitor General advice last week that left open the possibility that Mr Dutton may be ineligible under Section 44 of the Constitution. A Labour bid to have the question referred to the High Court was defeated by one vote last Thursday, but the opposition will launch a fresh attempt when Parliament resumes in mid-September. Just a quick note. Did anyone read the Solicitor General's advice? Mm-mm. It was actually quite funny. Would recommend. <laughs> <laughs> he basically said, based on all the information you've given me, you should be fine. But if the information changes, maybe not. Yeah. Spoken like mm. a true lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've got one more. Um... A Myanmar judge yesterday postponed the verdict against two journalists accused of illegally possessing official documents in a case that has drawn attention to the faltering state of press freedom in the troubled Southeast Asian nation. The verdict in the case of Kyo So-u and Walon was expected to be handed down yesterday, but was rescheduled for September the 3rd. The judge who announced the postponement said presiding Judge Yi Win could not attend because he had been ill since Friday. The two reporters have pleaded not guilty to violating Myanmar's colonial-era Official Secrets Act, which carries a penalty of up to 14 years in prison. They were arrested in December and have been detained since then, after being denied bail. The reporters contend that they were framed by police while reporting on Myanmar's brutal crackdown on Rohingya Muslims in the western state of Rakhine that has drawn international condemnation.
About 700,000 Rohingya fled to neighboring Bangladesh after the crackdown began last August, and Myanmar's army has been accused by human rights groups and UN experts of committing massive human rights violations amounting to ethnic cleansing and possibly genocide. The two reporters had been investigating the killing of 10 Rohingya by soldiers, police and Buddhist civilians. In a rare instance of security forces being punished for extrajudicial killings, Myanmar's government later announced that seven soldiers had been sentenced to 10 years in prison with hard labour for the killings. International Overdose Awareness Day is held annually on the 31st of August. It is a day to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related death and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends of those who have died. With the ongoing stigmatisation and criminalisation of people who consume drugs in Australia, International Overdose Awareness Day is as important as ever. This year, 3CR will be broadcasting a special half-hour program at 10am on Friday the 31st of August. Join us for a panel discussion looking at current efforts to reduce the tragic loss of life from overdose in Australia. Experts will offer perspectives from the fields of research, service delivery and, most importantly, peers in the community. is in the running to receive nearly $100,000 to help us retrofit our station for greater accessibility. That means better handrails, doors, taps, ramps. And more to provide improved access for everyone. But we need your support. Do you live within 5 kilometres of the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy? If you do, you're eligible to vote for us. Our project is part of the Victorian State Government's Pick My Project scheme. And you can jump online and vote for 3CR's Community Radio Accessibility Project by going to 3cr.org.au. It's only with your vote that we can receive this important funding to make our station more accessible. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We just wanted to let you know that if that um, news segment raised any um, any issues for you, um, it was a bit intense, so you can give Lifeline a ring on 131114. That's 131114. Um, and now we're going to go to a song by Macy Gray called Still. The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair coming up on September 8th and 9th in Eltham. There'll be books, art, giftware and talks by Philip Johnson, A.B. Bishop and Loretta Childs. There'll also be demonstrations and workshops on botanical art, propagation and native bonsai, as well as activities for children, refreshments and door prizes. Saturday and Sunday, September 8th and 9th, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Contact at apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430-513-433 for more details. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, we are very excited to be joined now on the phone by Deepanjana Pal. Deepanjana... Um, is in Melbourne for the Melbourne Writers Festival um, and she is an author and journalist usually based in India. 
She's written extensively on culture and gender for the past decade, and her most recent book, which I'm really looking forward to reading if there is an English translation, um, or if it was written in English, is Hushabai Baby, which is a feminist thriller set in Mumbai in India. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Ifanjana. I'm very happy to be here, and thank you for having me on your show. No, it's a pleasure. Um, how are you finding Melbourne? It's so beautiful, and the hot chocolate is great, so I ah. have really no complaints. So you're not a coffee girl? Um, I am, but right now, I think it's also because it's winter, so yep. it's really nice to sit with hot chocolate. Totally, totally. That is something that um, maybe we overlook in Melbourne, but you're right. <laughs> um, so tonight you are appearing in an event titled India's Me Too Movement for the Melbourne Writers Festival, and it's at the Wheeler Centre and um, for interested parties. I think there's still tickets available. Um, so I thought maybe we could start there. You're a woman, you write feminist work, um, you've been writing about culture and gender forever, and you work in the Indian film industry. What are your thoughts on Me Too in India? Um, well, it's been a difficult um, it's been a difficult thing to sum up because I think in terms of concrete results, um, we tend to look at something like uh, what Hollywood has done and expect results like that. Like there's a business of entertainment in America that has taken these allegations quite seriously this time round. They've ignored these accusations in the past, but this time round they're not behaving as badly. Now, next to that, I can't tell you that there's been a takedown. I can't tell you that anyone's actually come forward and made uh, formal accusations, for example, against uh, anybody in a position of power in um, in the Indian film industries uh, in a way that the Me Too movement has kind of happened in America. But I think the real victory for Me Too at this point is that it's a, it's a powerful disruption so you've got so many people talking about the power imbalances, the kind of inequality that we've normalized and sort of accepted as, yeah, sure, this is the norm and you don't need to fight it. The fact that we're having conversations about this, I think that has an impact that's more subtle and hopefully really far-reaching because hopefully then it'll sort of filter into processes. It's already filtered in tiny ways into how stories are being written, the kind of rights that are demanded. Um, there's a long way to go, but the conversation is a really good first step. Mm. Yeah, I like that That um, it has been more subtle in a lot of ways in Australia as well, and it's opened up conversations on a community or a one-to-one -one level as well as those really well-publicized kind of famous people take down ideas. Um, I was listening to a podcast this morning and they were talking about Me Too mostly impacting the arts, though, and being less um, being less prevalent in sort of everyday life. We're not talking about necessarily women working in, in restaurants or in cleaning or, um, you know, in academia or these sorts of... Is that a similar issue happening in India um, where you are seeing those more subtle conversations happen? Uh, I think I think this is a... Um, if, there any, if there's anything, rather, that we can say unites uh, our very disparate cultures across the world, it is that um, Me Too feels like a very privileged movement at this point. Um, unless you're in a position of reasonably uh, secure privilege already, you can't come out and attack somebody else who is more powerful than you are. Um, and I'm not surprised by this, and neither do I think that it's... I mean, of course, it would be great to have this conversation filter down to 
everyday life because really the norms need to change for those who are not privileged. Um, but the beginning will only happen. I mean, the system can't be changed by those who are the most oppressed. The system has to be changed by allies. Mm. And the privileged have to be the allies. That's, again, for me, one of the big uh, victories of Me Too, that it's connected allies and brought them out to campaign for um, those who are victims. Mm. Otherwise, we kind of expect the victims to do all the heavy lifting. They've got to complain. They've got to fight. They've got to go through, you know, turgid legal processes. Um, you can't expect that. Mm. They're victims. They're survivors. They're, they're dealing with trauma already. Uh, and in cases where they're not privileged, they're dealing with a lot more than just that immediate trauma. There's a whole social system that is keeping them down. So, uh, so it's good that the privileged are speaking up. Um, and the reason why I think, uh, you know, spaces like the arts end up having more people coming up and speaking up is because it allows for a little more freedom of expression and it's more, it's less rigid than uh, disciplines like, um, you know, corporate cultures and even the sciences. So, uh, so I don't think that's a bad thing. Mm. In India, we have seen a certain amount of Me Too kind of coming out with this list that was um, compiled last year by an, uh, a Dalit feminist, an Indian origin feminist who is currently living in America. Uh, in it, basically, she put up a Facebook post in which she compiled a list of people who have allegations of sexual harassment against them, men usually, in fact entirely, men in um, Indian academia mostly. And that list caused uh, a massive scandal, lots of divided opinions, um, there was the same accusation of, you know, how is it that only the liberal arts people, professors and lecturers from the liberal arts are the only ones who are being targeted practically. Um, and it's again, it's caused a con conversation, it's caused a disruption, and this is a good thing. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting you're talking about that. So Indian context is obviously not something I'm super familiar with, but this idea of allies needing to to do the work. Um, from what we see of India and, and I guess women's safety in India in the West, we are seeing that sort of allyship be more and more prevalent in terms of, you know, citywide marches when um, women are the victims of sexual violence in Delhi, for example, recently in the last few years and these sorts of things. Um, and it seems like from the outside that the public conversation is really turning and that, that allyship is... I guess becoming stronger, or that people are more willing to um, to publicly take a stand against this kind of violence. Um, sorry. No, I think you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. I think it is happening. Um, when the crowd sort of took to the streets in Delhi after the 2012 gang rape in Delhi, which was, I think, written about everywhere mm -hmm. uh, across the world, it was phenomenal. We hadn't seen a surge like that in ages. I mean. I don't think anyone can quite remember the last time uh, women's rights and women's safety actually became a topic of national conversation um, in that in that forceful a way, mm -hmm. and particularly because Delhi within India is known for being unsafe for women. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that this happened and the fact that the public outcry was as loud as it was was phenomenal. And the point is, it didn't just stop with outraging against that one incident. 
Um, what is great about what happened with the public outcry is that it's been a continued conversation. It hasn't stopped at that one thing. We've, caught, we've ended up talking about different aspects of violence against women, the kind of rights that women need both in workplaces, outside workplaces, the insecurity of the home space because, for instance, mm -hmm. I mean, everyone keeps freaking out about stranger rape, but the fact is the majority of uh, sexual assault, molestation, harassment, abuse happens to women from within, you know, circles of yeah. trust, families, close family, friends. Um, but these are all conversations that we had as a result of the coming together that happened after 2012. So the allyship, I think, has been building up, and um, and it's great because it's um, it's leading to much greater involvement. And the more involvement you have, the better chance you have of actually being able to change the way people think. And if that happens, then you know, then we're sorted. Mm. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> um, I mean. And it's not like it's going to happen anytime soon. It's all happening at a slightly geological pace. But it's, but it's an encouraging, it's yeah. It's 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 good to see this happening. These baby steps. Um, and so, I guess just to to finish up and taking a bit of a step back, um, I'm interested in your thoughts in that context on the idea of feminism or fighting sexism or women's rights, whatever, however it looks, um, in. India generally, as, as you've experienced or it, as you see it, because um, it's often said that feminism is kind of a Western idea. Um, so I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. I do think in the past we've struggled with um, this allegation of feminism sort of being a Western import. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that uh, a lot of the theory that came to us was by non-Indian feminists, feminists working in contexts that had very little in common, social context that had very little in common with the Indian one. Um, that's changed dramatically, I think, in the last 10, 15 years, because uh, there are a lot of Indian, uh, more than 10, 15 years, I think, it, I'd say in about the last 20 years, we've had a lot of really powerful work being done by Indian feminists, Indian feminists rooted in the Indian context and uh, sensitive to the kind of intersections that need to happen between different minorities, whether it's social minorities in terms of caste or religious minorities or uh, the rights of the LGBTQI community. Um, so this sort of work, I think, has really helped to root uh, Indian feminism in, you know, in its own society rather than be something that's brought in from elsewhere. Uh, it doesn't mean that the society at large or that mainstream society is open to feminism still. I mean, there's a certain amount of uh, support that you get, and then you see people taking two steps back. Mm -hmm. um, or even worse, when, you know, the men's rights activists, I love that phrase, by the way, <laughs> men's rights activists, because, you know, they don't get any rights otherwise. <laughs> anyway, um, I love it when they come into the conversation, they're like, but we're victims too, and you don't look mm -hmm. at us. Right. So, so that's know, a worldwide things, thing, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's amusing and frustrating, but, yeah. but it's, it's not uh, being seen as a foreign thing anymore, feminism. Mm. And, um, and that's because of the work of feminists, uh, people like Srila, who you're going to talk to, uh, hopefully, uh, people like mm -hmm. Nivedita Menon, people like Urvashi Botalia, who have, you know, for instance, Urvashi set up a feminist press, and they bring out 
great stories in mm-hmm. books in English and in uh, other languages as well, translated stuff as well. Um, you know, it sort of filtered slowly, but it is an Indian feminism today. And uh, and that's kind of powerful as well. Mm. That's amazing. Um, well, that is all we have time for, unfortunately. But thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dipanjana. It's been really, really fascinating hearing from you. And again, if people want to um, hear you speak more tonight um, in an event at the Wheeler Centre called India's Me Too Movement, there are still tickets available, and I'll pop the website up on our Facebook page so people can buy them. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thanks. Bye. One love to all the people in Melbourne. Please come down to Rasta's Journey Home, a movie made by Dr. Maria Stratford. Special benefit screening, it's on Tuesday, 28 August 2018, 6.15pm to 7.30pm. Tonbury Picture House, 802 High Street, Tonbury. Finalist Africa World Documentary Film Festival. And it's on Ethnograph Film Official Selections and Harlem International Film Festival 2017. You can get a ticket at the venue. Peace and love. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. You're joined by Ayan, Lauren and myself, Anya. Next up, we have Cara Keys from the ACTU, which is the Australian Council of Trade Unions, to talk to us about um, family and domestic violence leave. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cara. So we're having a bit of technical difficulties. We'll be back really soon. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. you got to remember, Nanox is a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me. Good morning, it's Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Sorry about the technical difficulties before, but now we have Cara on the line. Cara Keys from the Australian Council of Trade Unions. Hello, Cara. Hello, good morning. Good morning, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, So let's jump straight in. Um, We're going to be talking about family and domestic violence leave in Australia. So what is it? Is it paid or unpaid? How many days off can someone take under the scheme? What are the eligibility requirements? Hit me. All right. So from the 1st of August this year, um, we have 
2.4 million workers, all award-reliant workers, who now have access to unpaid family and domestic violence leave. Um, it applies to all workers, so mm-hmm. that's full-time, part-time and casual workers. And those workers who are experiencing family and domestic violence are entitled up to five days of unpaid leave. Mm. Are there any specific eligibility requirements for this? Um, of course there are. I guess with, uh, with all types of leave, there are eligi- eligibility uh, uh, requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, it really depends on um, definitions of what a family member is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a range of definitions uh, in the award clause about what a family member is, so your spouse, a de facto partner or a child or a parent or grandparent, so that kind of um, intimate family relationship. But it also extends out to um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kinship rules mm-hmm. um, and also um, uh, it's sort of a de facto partner um, in, in relation to um, to someone who, you know, you've had a relationship with. Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, when you're taking it, um, it, it, it's it's for when you are experiencing family and domestic violence and um, really applies when people need um, to deal with the impact of family violence um, and it's not practical for them to do that sort of outside working um, hours of work and that that is the case a lot of the time. Mm. Um, When when someone's experiencing violence um, and often... Um, they need to make themselves and often um, make children safe. Um, a lot of what needs to be done um, needs to be done in working hours. That's, mm. that's the reality of you know, going to see the police or you've got uh, an appointment with a counsellor or a family domestic uh, support worker or, or you're going to court. Um, all of that, you can't do any of that really outside of working hours. Um, all of that needs to be done um, during normal business hours. Mm. And, and that's why... That's why um, that's why people need, uh, need need leave to do it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, um, from our perspective, um, the introduction um, into the awards of um, unpaid family and domestic violence leave doesn't go far enough. Mm. Um, we, we, yeah. we firmly believe that um, the quantum should be 10 days and it, and it should be paid. Mm. I saw um, a recent media release from the ACTU about... Um, about how New Zealand recently became the second country in the world to legislate for paid family and domestic violence leave, um, guaranteeing 10 days of paid leave for all workers who are experiencing violence and the need to escape. Um, So I was hoping to talk a little bit about that. Firstly, why is paid family and domestic violence leave as opposed to unpaid um, so important? And secondly, why is that not happening here? Where's the pushback from? Sure, sure. Um, Look, um we actually had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago um, to speak to um, Dan Logie, who is the Minister in the New Zealand Government, um, who was successful in um, getting um, paid leave in New Zealand. Um, it was really fantastic. We had a meeting with her um, over Zoom. She was in New Zealand and us here in Australia. And um, it was really, uh, I must say, it was really pleasant because um, we obviously wanted to pass on our congratulations for the sisterhood in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was um, equally complimentary um, of, of Australia in that it was actually Australians who gave them the idea and the impetus mm. um, and basically the campaign infrastructure um, 
to make that happen in New Zealand. So that was really great, a sort of, you know, um, a, a trans-Tasman um, interchange of, of winning for working women in particular. Um, obviously, uh, Paisley um, is so important. One, because all of the things that need to be done to escape violence do mm. occur in business hours, but why is the pay element most important? Because um, women shouldn't have to choose between economic security and escaping violence. Mm. Situation. That's the reality. And what it takes to leave is, um, you know, over 100 hours, um, you know, removal, um, taking kids into a new school, doing all the practical things that are necessary. Mm -hmm. But then it also costs money. All of that costs money. And the last thing that we would want is for any worker, but particularly women um, who are experiencing violence, because women do experience violence. Um, at a much higher rate than men mm-hmm. uh, in domestic situations. What we, the last thing we would want is for them to fall into financial insecurity or indeed um, have to make a choice between staying and leaving because um, they didn't have financial security or, or, or job security mm-hmm. um, during the time that, that they are wanting to leave the violence situation. And that, that really is why paid leave is absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, absolutely. Uh, women are already in highly vulnerable um, and exploited forms of labour in, in, in our workforce. We know that, and, and predominantly women more than men, again. Um, so if you're already in highly vulnerable forms of work, um, the last thing is that we need is that we need is for women to drop out of the workplace as well. We, you know, we, want people, we want workers to be able to continue their financial independence and make themselves and often their children safe. Mm, mm. And um, I guess that leads into the second part of that question. So why, why is it not happening here? It seems so obvious that that's what women need absolutely absolutely look um i think there's a couple of elements to that um one element is that there has been a fair amount of pushback from the employer peak bodies Mm. um which we found um quite interesting during our uh, case in the fair work commission around uh, around paid leave because quite a number of employers uh already um have paid leave Mm-hmm. In Australia, mm-hmm. um, you know, so we found the uh, the pushback from the peak bodies of the employers quite interesting. Um, you know, it, it really wasn't reflecting um, where their own members are at mm-hmm. um, in, in terms of the peak body. But you know, at the end of the day, um, it, it, it's not chicken little. The sky's not going to fall in. You know, um, you know, millions of workers um, already have access to pay loans, and it hasn't driven business into the ground. I mean, if you want to look at the bare economics of it. It's, it's five cents a day mm. per worker. Um, so it's really not a situation that the sky's going to fall in like the employer peak body said. But let's let's be realistic about it. It takes leadership from government. Mm. And we haven't seen that leadership from the current government at all. Mm. Um, Especially last have, week. <laughs> well, no, that's right. Oh, well, I mean, you know, that, that, that's another, um, another conversation, isn't it, really? But mm. I mean, what, what has spun out of that is that we now have Kelly O'Dwyer who is the Minister for Women, so the ongoing Minister for Women, but also the Minister for Industrial Relations. Um, and uh, when she was Minister for Women, um, she showed no leadership on the need for paid family and domestic violence leave. Um, she has, you know, really uh, just been sort of consumed with the sort of big business agenda that she'd rather be giving out, you know, mm. um, billion-dollar tax cuts to to large corporations and the banks and trying to protect the banks from, from the Banking Royal Commission and actually focus on what's necessary for working women. Mm-hmm. And really one of, one of the fundamental platforms for that is 
is something like paid family and domestic violence leave. So, you know, I, I, I think at the end of the day, it really does take leadership from government on these issues, as we see in New Zealand. I mean, mm. you know, when we're talking to the minister in New Zealand, she said the bosses had all the same arguments that the bosses here in Australia have. Um, and yet they were successful because they decided as a government mm. to show leadership um, and show leadership particularly um, for working women and some of the most vulnerable working women um, in, in their country. And the, and the same applies from here. If you haven't got a government that's willing to show leadership, um, then ultimately they're failing. Yeah. Oh, one can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so yeah. much well, for joining us today, Cara. Thanks. That's unfortunately all the time we have. Um, Thanks for having but me. But talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. And just if either of the last segments brought up anything for you um, that you might need to talk about, if you want to give 1-800-RESPECT a call on 1-800-737-732. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, Lauren and Anya. George is away at the moment, um, fighting the good fight at school, marking um, uh, eager and clingy students' work. So, so we, we appreciate you do, doing that work. Um, so before we get into alternative news, we thought we'd hear from... One of our favourites, her name is Miss Blanks. She's a rapper and she hails from Brisbane. And that was Miss Blanks um, with Woman's World 2.0 and it's with two other artists, Okenyo and Jess Ware.
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan and Lauren and myself, Anya. So next up, we're going to be talking about the recent film Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> <laughs> Just full, full disclosure, um, I haven't watched the movie yet, but Ayan has. Oh, that was annoying. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, Crazy Rich Asians. Oh, okay. So before you go into it, um, I loved it. I I thought it was amazing, and um, I saw. So I went to go see it with. I read the book, not not in its entirety. So I read like four chapters of the book. It was it was beautiful, and I feel like it was more detailed as well. Mm. They really got into the um, geographical history Mm. of the. So they they got into the history of the region, how the. um, So what would you call? Would you call uh, the Chinese migration to mm. um, to Singapore? Yeah. Well, was there a term for that, or am I maybe? Yeah. Anyway, not sure. So, 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 so they <laughs> talked about that. Yeah. So they talked about that. <laughs> they talked the yeah, immigration, right? <laughs> That's a fancy word. Mm. But yeah, so they talked about that. Um, I felt like you really also got to know the characters more, mm. and you got to also know their um, motivations. Mm. Um, and I felt like the book was a bit more serious than the movie. Okay. Um, yeah. well, I mean, that's 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 what I was thinking when I was watching it. Um, but it was so beautiful. I loved it. I loved it. Was it made me? Ugh, it, it cracked me up. Mm. And just seeing a cast like a majority Asian. Mm. I think it was all Asian except maybe. It was all Asian. Yeah. yeah no. Apparently, my sister today. I was telling her that we were going to discuss this story, mm. and she told me that. When they were shopping for the movie, mm. um, shopping to companies, um, apparently they were like, "Oh, um, there's the uh, there's the main uh, what's the girl's name? Rachel. Mm. Uh, so that's the love interest of the the dude. played by Constance Wu. Oh, okay, mm. cool. You've got the names down. Pat. I do. love it. <laughs> yes, you really care prepared. So apparently they wanted her to, to to be played by a white woman. Yes. Yeah, yes, I have heard that. So there was a lot of resistance about the movie being made but it was a like a box office hit people loved it and interestingly it's a box office hit in the US and here mm-hmm. it's not doing so well in Singapore or China oh, or any of the South it's not even released in India right yeah yeah oh. so it's not it's not doing well there yeah. which is which is yeah. quite interesting and Nick Young oh god he was so delicious sorry Right. <laughs> yeah, he was he was beautiful and it it was it was very Cinderella like. That's was, right. They call it the Asian Great Gatsby. But oh, do you feel like it's not doing as well in Asia for the and I know I'm gonna sound really basic in this mm-hmm. this breakdown of it, but because in Asia, they're not starving for Asian representation in film. Mm. And so maybe the film's actually not that good. I mean, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Yeah. But here, when do we ever get to see a film, mm. a Western-made film, with an entirely Asian cast? I can't actually think of Yeah, I think the Joy, Joy Luck Club was the last movie with an all-Asian Wow. That was, what, that was 25 years ago yeah. or something? Yeah. yeah. Holy smoke, really? Yeah. Which wow. is why it's been such a big... Um, global phenomenon. Yeah. Mm. We've been starving for it, and you've seen that show, the Netflix show, um, 
to all the boys I've dated before or to oh, all the boys I've... Oh, don't even. Did you like it? I, I haven't seen it. I feel like I'm it's sorry. too young for I'm me. watching The West Wing. Yeah, no. But, but the protagonist, she's, she's an Asian girl she's as well. She's Asian. I think yeah. she's mixed in the movie. I'm not too sure. I think her dad's white. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah so, so there's, there's been all these like plethora of, not plethora, but it's really the last few years there has been a demand and, and it's slowly coming through. But <laughs> now let's, just let's talk about all the flashing. problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what, are, what are your thoughts? Because I have, I have many thoughts. I have many, many thoughts. Break it down. Um, so for those who don't know, Crazy Rich Asians is um, based on the book of the same name. It's about a Chinese-American woman, Rachel Chu, who travels to Singapore to meet the family of a Chinese-Singaporean boyfriend, Nick Young, finds out that he's ridiculously rich, the 1% of the 1% of the wealthiest in Singapore, so some of the world's most wealthiest people, and then has a sort of a face-off with Nick's traditional and proper mother, Eleanor, Eleanor Young. Um, and these people exist, by the way. They run in very tight circles. It's impossible to get through. And like, I've lived in Singapore my whole life, and I wouldn't be able to tell you mm. who who runs in this group. Mm-hmm. And the author himself was one of um, um, belongs to one of the wealthiest families in Singapore. His great grandfather was the founding director of Singapore's oldest bank, um, OCBC. So he knows what he's talking about. And mm-hmm. the book is very reflective of his experiences. Um, and even for someone who's lived there the entire life, it was quite quite a revelation for me. I just mm. didn't know that people like that existed and lived, um, but I, I guess mm. they do. Um, I think one of the main um, issues that I have with the movie and has been debated about and, and talked about quite, quite a lot in the last few months is... Um, Yes, it seems like a stepping stone for representation of, of Asians and Hollywood and and all of that, but it really isn't representative of Singapore, firstly, um, because people don't live like that mm. there. But also there's this weird um, sort of assimilation of Chinese culture from mainland China into Singapore. Like someone, I was reading an article where they were talking about that scene where they sit around making dumplings or something, which mm. I like don't know about that apparently doesn't happen that doesn't happen in Chinese families it's a very northeastern Chinese tradition Mm. that nobody in Singapore follows Um, but also I think for me the main the main issue that I have is how the movie and the book sort of just doesn't talk about the minorities that exist there Mm. Um, so 77 percent of Singapore's population um, is ethnically Chinese. Um, and for someone who's grown up in a country and just has never seen, you know, anything other than a than a standard Chinese face on advertisements or on TV or whatever, it doesn't surprise me, but it still it still hurts. Mm. That, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, only because racism against minorities in Singapore is still an issue. Um I was reading this article by Sangeeta Tanapal, who's an artist and writer um, who's based here but talks a lot about institutionalized racism in Singapore and just talking about how job ads frequently only ask for those who can speak in English and Mandarin. Even if minorities are able to do so, they're told that ethnic Chinese are wanted. Mm. Um, Muslim women in hijabs are kept out of certain civil service jobs because of the of what they wear. Um, 
And the country's ruling power has stated that Malay Muslims in Singapore cannot be trusted in armed forces due to their divided loyalties between religion and state. These are things that happen. They can't stand on the front lines of the army because, you know, crudely speaking, the government is worried that they'll jump over to Malaysia if there's ever, Mm. ever a conflict, you know. These are things that happen. And yet in the movies, apparently brown bodies are shown in positions of servitude Mm. and not as representative of the country. Mm. Um, so, you know, fine. For those who say this is just a rom-com, it's just a movie, you know, it's fine. Mm. Um, it is not. No, <laughs> not for us who have to see this all the time. But mm. it's, it's also part of the socialization where people then look at brown bodies in Singapore or in, yeah. Mm. Yeah. But also, why is Hollywood celebrated as the pinnacle of diversity just because they've released a movie now mm. with an all asian cast does that mean that everything they've done so far can be erased and forgotten about yeah no <laughs> <laughs> yeah but also this weird um sort of lens at which um this movie is is centered upon this this ridiculous amount of wealth you know mm. that's the only way that the asian representation comes out as well yeah. does that yeah. make sense yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely that's that's not okay. normal Asians, that's but yeah. rich Asians, yeah, and mm. Asians who are better than the rest. That, that exceptional migrant or exceptional mm. other kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are my thoughts. So are you yeah. going to see the movie? Hundred percent. Okay. <laughs> Can I come with you? Oh God. Yeah. See, that's the thing. I want to watch it because you know it's Singapore, and I and I would like to see that on screen Mm. while also being hyper aware that nobody in that movie looks like me or Mm. has experiences that are even remotely close to what I what I have Mm. you're a critical you're a critical spectator Mm. which I I mean we all are there's so many Mm. shows and movies that we've seen that's problematic and we're like as long as we understand well my excuse is as long as I understand it's problematic and I can point to it and, Mm. and not be brainwashed then I'm I'm okay with mm-hmm. like yeah. just watching it and then sort of leaving my critical judgment aside. Um, but yeah, okay, that's interesting because there's pe- people of color in the West who might not know mm-hmm. about the history and the um, politics mm. that are happening in Singapore. And for us, like you said, most of us are like starving for representation, so we'll take it however, it's however, yeah. and uh, yeah. And, and so for us, we're all excited. We're like, oh, my God, yes, yes, yes. But, um, yeah, sometimes diversity, for the sake of diversity, isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a really good point that you've made. Mm. Um, so we kind of ended up wanting to do a two-parter of alternative <laughs> news today. We just have too much to talk about. Um, but we also thought that this was an equally important topic. Um, we recently read an article um, in the conversation about uh, what's called reproductive coercion. Um, and so we are going to be talking about pregnancy and um, and forced abortion and that sort of thing. So if this is something that's going to be um, difficult for you to listen to, we'll probably be talking about it for the next five to ten minutes. So you're welcome to just switch off and switch back on again. Um, but so reproductive coercion... Um, is the control over having or not having a child. And it typically takes three forms, either pregnancy coercion, where a woman's forced or manipulated into becoming pregnant, birth control sabotage, where a woman is prevented from using contraception or has her contraception tampered with, mm-hmm. or the control of pregnancy outcomes, including where a woman is forced to continue or terminate a pregnancy against her will. 
um, and all of the literature on this subject notes that reproductive coercion overlaps significantly with intimate partner violence and sexual violence. Um, I had no idea that this was so widespread, but um, it seems that so it's very likely underreported and there's been no comprehensive Australian survey about it, but a US survey suggested that around 8% of respondents had experienced reproductive coercion in their lifetime. Mm. Um, and that is um, estimated to be a real underrepresentation of the reality. So that is a huge percentage of women that have had this happen. I, wh- what were your thoughts on reading the articles and... Um, um, I don't think it was a very surprising topic for me. Mm-hmm. I mm. think because I've I've heard plenty of stories like yeah. this. Um, in terms of, I guess my my background or whatever. Like, um, yeah, I I know plenty of women who've been forced to have babies. Well, this mm. is that's yeah. the thought that I had. No, so it's interesting because. You know, a lot of the research is focusing on, for example, women in um, in homeless shelters and or domestic mm-hmm. violence um, shelters and these sorts of things, which are obviously particularly vulnerable cohorts. But my biggest question in the back of my mind was, what about in non-Western, like it, from non women from non-Western backgrounds? What is the because there is so much um, mm. there is so much pressure on women to have children or to have a particular um, sex gender of a child mm. or like how do we even begin to mm. examine what is and isn't reproductive coercion in those spaces yeah it's it's really interesting I, I mean I didn't really um, think about the term much but I obviously knew what it was mm. um, because I've seen and heard stories um, and a lot of it is um, it goes hand in hand with emotional abuse Mm. as well and it's not as simple as just um you know taking someone's um pills pills yeah Yeah. Mm. taking someone's pills away but it's the constant um devaluing of of you know what a woman is and if she's not a mother then what is she good for that Mm. sort of stories i've I've heard and that's also coercion yeah Yeah. um so yeah i i'm surprised that it's a surprise. Yeah, no, yeah. totally. Yeah. I think I am. Um, I think again, it's one of those things that you, like you've said, you're not aware of the name of it, but you know that it's happening in. Mm. And my first thought, in terms of like my experiences when I was reading it, was that um, was men's rights activists or, mm. or those hyper masculine in that toxic masculinity kind of way. The um, would you deny me a child? Mm. You are denying me parental mm. rights. Mm. This this kind of rhetoric around women always in the position of women is always in the position of power, even though the, there is a very clear power imbalance in the relationship, mm. and it's that way of like taking control or power back by controlling a woman's body, mm. um, and it's never in isolation, like you say. It's always in the context of of violence or um, abuse. Mm. Um, Hmm. Has there been much research in Australia about this? No. So there's there's one organisation in Queensland that has um, has done research, um, Children by Choice it's called, and they said that they're seeing it definitely in around one in seven women presenting for abortions, but hmm. there's no clear, clear... Um, yeah, no clear research yet. Um, but so this is an area that will be... 
there's suggested that there should be more research, so we'll be keeping an eye on it, and hopefully we will um, be able to discuss it in more detail in coming mm. weeks. So it's called reproductive coercion. Coercion. I love. Mm. I, like you said, it it's not a th- well, it's not a thing until it's given a name. Yeah. It's always existed. Yeah, exactly. Especially the poking holes in the condoms. Yeah, yeah, That's, yeah, and I've seen that actually joked around in movies, and 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 you and you hear about girls saying, "Oh my God, you know, n- knowing him, he's probably going to want to tie me down to a house." Yeah, and, you know, yeah, and and to do that, it's like it's yeah. another part of violence against women that's normalized in society. Mm, it really mm. is. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. If you want to hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the Radioactive Show on 3CR, 10 a.m. Saturdays. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, Lauren and myself, Anya. Next up, we have Dr. Juliet Watson, who's a lecturer in urban housing and homelessness and the deputy director of the... Union Housing Research Lab at RMIT University. A qualified social worker, Juliet has extensive research, teaching and experience experience, practice experience in the areas of homelessness, gendered violence and youth. She has published widely in scholarly and industry journals and her book, Youth Homelessness and Survival Sex, Intimate Relationships and Gendered Subjectivities was released by Ridledge in 2018. Thank you for joining us today, Juliet. Good morning, Anya. Um, let's jump right in. What is survival sex? So survival sex is, I guess we call it a practice where um, women, although it doesn't necessarily just have to be women, um, but the research that I looked at was examining women. So mm-hmm. women are using their relationships um, as a way of just surviving homelessness, managing homelessness. So, you know, you might think of it as a transactional arrangement where sex is exchanged for somewhere to stay Mm. or food, other material needs. Um, But it's not necessarily as obvious as that. But I think the most important point is that it it differs from commercial sex work where there is, I guess, a contract in place that sex will be exchanged for money mm. at that point survival sex is more subtle it tends to happen within relationships mm. 
Mm. And in your article on the conversation about this topic, you mm. do talk about that. So you mentioned that a, a seemingly mutually beneficial contract of women trading mm. sex for a place to stay is often not, and that such contracts um, aren't always obvious to women seeking shared accommodation and might not even be presented yes. initially as a transactional arrangement. Can you break that, break that down for me a little bit? What does that mean? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, in those circumstances, um, the example I talk about is a young woman that I spoke with who uh, arranged to go and see a room. Mm-hmm. She was living in a youth refuge at the time. Her time at the youth refuge was coming up, so she was getting fairly desperate to find somewhere to live. She responded to an ad to sublet a room mm-hmm. and, you know, thinking that that's what she was going for. And then when she turned up, um, the the person, the man who was offering the room, was no longer interested in giving her the room once he found out she had a boyfriend. So he had a clear idea in his mind that he was going to um, either have a relationship with her or there would be some kind of sexual transaction mm. going on there. Mm-hmm. And she had no idea, obviously. No, no, she was just applying for a room. That's yeah. what she was doing, yeah. Yeah, and I guess if, if someone's pretty desperate at that point in time, then they won't really have a choice but to go exactly. with it. Exactly. And look, the applying for the room side of things, I think that's got quite a bit of attention, but it's not necessarily uh, where the majority of this is happening. Mm. I think what you see is it's more likely to be young women or women in general, I looked at young women specifically, mm. who are couch surfing, who are kind of relying on people to provide them with somewhere to stay, mm. finding themselves in situations where they're now expected to transact sex for that room to stay, but they might not have accepted the room initially. Mm. For that reason, there was another woman I spoke to who who um, said that she had been sexually assaulted multiple times because she'd accepted rooms from people to mm. stay there. And when she got there, she found that actually that wasn't the arrangement that she thought it was. She thought people were being nice, they were offering her somewhere to stay, and then there was this expectation she would have sex with them. And what was really quite um, disturbing was she said that after a while, she was, she was homeless for many years, mm. after a while she would just agree to have sex with these men because she saw it as a way of avoiding being raped by them. Mm. And, I mean, I think we'd, we'd agree that actually agreeing to sex under those circumstances isn't exactly consensual. Yeah, it's coercion, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And you mentioned that um, this is a phenomenon that affects young women in general. What's the age range we're talking about? Well, I can only really speak to the women that I spoke that mm. I interviewed. So I interviewed young women 18 to 25. Mm, okay. um, but look, I have to say, I think it's happening beyond that age range. Of course, yep. it is. Of course. Um, yeah. I, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a social worker. That's my background. Um, and there are people that I still speak to who work in community services, um, social services and workers that I go and interview about other research projects, and they will tell me that this is definitely going on outside of this age range, that mm. women are susceptible to it. And look, you know, if we want, what I kind of like to say about this, these young women is that I don't want to kind of target them as behaving in these strange activities that no one else does. I think we could say that this happens across the social spectrum, mm. that it's happening across different class groups. I, I'm sure there are marriages that could be classified <laughs> not being that different from what's going on mm. for these young women that I spoke to. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, you also mentioned in that um, conversation article that the structural issues in the housing market that are putting women in such unsafe positions need to be addressed for this to change. And yeah. so can you just talk about what these issues are and how we can tackle them? Sure. I mean, when you break it down to its most basic point, there's just not enough housing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's very difficult to access. So we've got... Uh, women who are going into crisis accommodation, if they're lucky enough to get into crisis accommodation straight away, mm-hmm. mostly they're couch surfing and relying on friends and families. And what often happens then is you burn out those relationships. So you can only stay with people for so long. Then they're likely to go into crisis housing if they can get in. But then where do they go after crisis housing? So mm-hmm. they're caught up in this loop of just moving around and around. And I mean, the young woman I spoke to before, about before, who uh, applied for the room, part of the difficulty for her was that she was coming to the end of her stay in the youth refuge Mm. and there was nowhere for her to go. She was on a youth allowance. Mm. How is she actually going to be able to afford private rental, which makes her susceptible to these offers where there's this cheaper rent being provided? Mm. So, yeah, we... There's not enough housing. Yeah. <laughs> There's not enough ongoing housing mm. as well. And you speak to people who, because we know one of the big causes of um, women's homelessness is family violence. So you speak to people in the refuge sector and they will say, yes, it's a big problem actually finding somewhere for women to stay once they leave refuge. Mm. That, you know, these women who, if you actually just gave them somewhere to stay, they don't need a lot of other support. They've been running the family home Mm. (laughs) for a long time. Um, They just need somewhere to stay. So without the property, women are going to be vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, so more housing, but also more safe and culturally appropriate housing would be the first step, I would say. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, Um, we can keep talking about this, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today, (laughs) Juliet. We'll we'll continue this privately. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Good morning. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to... Uh, Tuesday breakfast on the 3CR community radio. I am Ayan. Uh, you just heard from Anya, and earlier um, Lauren was on the show, and it's it's funny because she had to dip out. It's her second day on the job, so that's exciting. And I don't know if she wanted me to share that information, but you know how I am. Um, right now we have Leela um, from Community Grocers. Um, Leela is here to chat to us about the community grocers, um, I guess, upcoming because it launches at 9 a.m. campaign. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Leela. Thanks for having me. 
So, Leela, um, for those who don't know about um, the community grocer, can you tell us um, how it started and maybe the motivation for starting such an organisation? Sure. So the community grocer is all about healthy, connected communities. So we know that with the rising costs of living, many households are struggling to put food on the table, in particular healthy food like fruit and vegetables. And, of course, low levels of fruit and vegetable consumption um, has negative social and health implications. So our mission is to run affordable weekly fresh fruit and vegetable markets, and we use the market setting of subsidised produce, which allows people to purchase high-quality and culturally appropriate fruit and vegetables at their doorstep, and this offers people choice and dignity in vibrant, inclusive and multicultural atmosphere that fosters connections within the community. Beautiful. And I live in one of the, not targeted areas, but one of the areas where you, yeah, um, the community grocer works out from. And, yeah, so when I'm going to work I'm on, on Friday, I don't know if it's still open on Friday. In Carlton. Don't know if I'm sorry. Well, yeah, so, yeah, and there's always such a long line and, 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 and the presentation, the way the food is set up. Sometimes people who run these sort of things, it's, there's not a lot of thought, there's not a lot of, um, uh, yeah, there's not a lot of thought put into the way things are set up and, and, and just making it look pleasing, right? It's sort of like people see it as, oh, oh, we're doing charity in a way, but this is, there's vibrancy, there's community, there's just, that's yeah, right. that's yeah. why. That's, that's very intentional. So, yeah, in contrast to a lot of food relief services, the mm. traditional, you know, kind of handout style, um, we want the market to be a place where people feel um, that they have dignity and choice um, and they can connect with community and make friends. So that's, mm. yeah. Yes. It's very important. I love the emphasis on dignity. So important. So Community Grocers um, launched in 2014, if I'm correct. And you're still around. So can you tell us perhaps the reasons for um, you guys still lasting? Yeah. um, So, yeah, we, we try and be a sustainable enterprise. We still have a long way to go, which is why we're launching our crowdfunding today. Um, but we definitely have a unique and replicable business model um, mm. that's working. So we started, you're right, in 2014 with one market in Carlton in the housing estate, and now we run six markets in Fitzroy and Flemington as well in housing estates and also in three urban growth corridors mm. in Faulkner, Pakenham and Mernda. So we serve around 500 customers wow. a week. Um, and we think our customers come from over 30 different nationalities. Mm. And I guess that's one of the reasons that we really wanted you to be on because um, the like financial independency, we're always talking about it, like why that's important. Mm. And um, I guess we want our audience who are listening in to, to, to support it, to make sure that this venture um, continues on and uh, I, I guess gets bigger and, and, the, and other communities who may not have access and need it can, I guess, join the list. Yeah. Um, so when I was having a read of your bio, it said that um, your enterprise is underpinned by social environmental values. Can you tell us what that is and what it looks like on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. So we want to be part of a food system that's fair, equitable and sustainable. Uh, so basically that means that every decision we make is um, we consider 
um, our community and our environment. Mm. So that's everything from where we sell the food to how we purchase it um, to um, what we sell and um, we always engage with in genuine community mm. um, engagement in every decision we make. Um, so I guess I can summarise that with the four key considerations we make when we're running our markets. So the most important is obviously affordability. So we know that our produce is around 70% cheaper than supermarkets. Mm. So that makes a big difference when you're looking at you know, how much you're spending a week on food. Um, access and location is really important. So we know that around um, that most of our customers live within a kilometre of the market um, and most walk to the market. Um, so a lot of our customers, you know, that maybe they don't have a vehicle um, or they have, you know, some mobility issues, that kind of thing. So so where we are is really important. Um, we, um, as I was saying, we choice is really important. So we want to make sure that people can purchase what they know how to cook with. So we have things like mm. cultural staples like okra that are really expensive yes. in supermarkets or maybe, you know, you can't get them at all. Yeah. Um, we keep them even further subsidised so that people can cook what they, yeah, culturally, what mm. they want to be able to cook. Um, and and also, as I was saying before, social inclusion <clears throat> is really, really important. Um, we know that our customers feel more connected to the community since attending the market, um, and lots of our customers have made a friend at the market. Mm. So those are all the kind yeah. of things that we consider when we're thinking about yeah, yeah. Um, and I've actually, I've actually seen that as well. When I've got, as I said, when I've gone past the market, you there's it's. It, it doesn't feel like a forced engagement. People are just laughing, chatting in corners. It, it just seems so natural. It doesn't seem forced. It doesn't seem like, you know, oh, one person's the consumer and the other person's the, um, what's the opposite of the consumer? Oh, my God. The, the, the seller, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the I'm staff, going back to yeah. what I want economics. I love it. Um, so Community Grocer, as we said, is launching a campaign called Pedal Powered Produce. Okay, so that was a mouthful. <laughs> Can you tell us what that is? Some deliberate alliteration there, yeah. So it's it's really exciting. We're launching at um, 9 o'clock today. Um, and basically it's a veg- vegetable box scheme delivered by bicycle. Um, so we're oh. going to pack the veggies and the fruit into boxes and um, take them out to grocer hubs, so other community organisations yeah. that we partner with as pick-up points. Um, and we're going to have volunteer cyclists um, with, mm. um, with trailers and oh, that's incredible. Um, deliver the produce. So um, there's three big incentives for this project. Um, firstly, um, we want affordable produce to be more available to more people, and we know that food insecurity doesn't just affect um, people who um, aren't in work. It also mm. affects working people. Um, so there's a lot of people that can't make it down to the market during market hours, so having a box scheme will make affordable mm. produce accessible to them. Um, of course, we want to be financially sustainable because, mm. as you said, we want to be around, we want to stay around, mm. we want to reach more people. Um, so boxes are a way to sell more produce but also to sell out every week, yes. and that's really important. Um, and it means um, with, that we have a positive environmental impact. Of course, delivering by bicycle yeah. um, reduces our carbon footprint, but it also means no food waste at the end of every market. So mm. uh, it makes yes. sense from a lot of perspectives. I yeah. love it. It's it's a win on all fronts, which is incredible. Yeah. And um, finally, how? So let's say we've got listeners who are really who who love what you're doing, right? And who want to support it, want to continue to make your um, uh, enterprise, sus- I guess, financially sustainable. Um, 
what can they do? And even if they wanted to volunteer. Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of ways to get involved. And we're a community-based organisation. We absolutely rely on the support of other community members um, so that we can yeah, not just survive but also mm. thrive. Um, so the best way to get involved is just to jump on our website. There's a whole lot of information there. It's thecommunitygrocer.com.au. Um, you'll find a link to the crowdfunding campaign there so you can donate to Pedal Powered Produce. Um, if you like what we do, you can like our Facebook page. Um, so like us and share it with your friends. Come down and shop with us. You can find all the times and locations on the website. Um, and, yes, we always need more volunteers. So either um, come down and volunteer at the market or um, volunteer behind the scenes. We'll, we'll always find something for you to do. So get in touch. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad there's, there's something that everybody can do. Mm. It's not just, yeah, because sometimes you don't have money to send you away. But if you can come through and volunteer and yeah that's that's incredible thank you so much Leela thanks for having me one love to all the people in Melbourne please come down to Russell's Journey Home a movie made by Dr. Maria Stratford special benefit screening it's on Tuesday 28 August 2018 6.15pm to 7.30pm Tonbury Picture House 802 High Street Tonbury Finalist Africa World Documentary Film Festival and it's on Ethnograph Film Official Selections and Harlem International Film Festival 2017 you can get a ticket at the venue peace and love Rumination ReCR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program, featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855am. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with um, Ayan and myself, Lauren. Uh, what am I saying? Yeah, <laughs> it just comes so naturally, right? <laughs> with Ayan and myself, Anya. Sorry, Lauren. Lauren's left. Um, we're just going to play one more song for you. It's Native Tongue by Mojo Juju, who's going to be performing in Melbourne on the 9th of November, which is also, I don't know. Oh, I'm on. looking dead in the f- <laughs> dead in your face, wondering what you're talking about. Well, anyway, 9th of November is an important date, okay. so here you go. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.